thanks for tuning in to Power Athlete Radio. When you want to be the best, you have to believe in your heart that you're a bad motherfucker. These sage words come from none other than this week's Power Athlete Radio guest, Dave Spitz. Coach Spitz runs California Strength in NorCal and is committed to making American weightlifting medalists. So much so that he believes a coach's job is to work for the athlete and not the other way around. The guys discuss the pros and cons of early adoption of the sport and specialization, as well as some of what Dave would consider essential attributes of a successful weightlifter. You may find it surprising that the age-old practice of sizing up an athlete based on limb and torso length does not hold as much weight as once thought. Even a seasoned coach like Dave is constantly reevaluating his assessment process. And finally, a few stories about notorious Bulgarian weightlifting master, Coach Ivan Abijayev. The man often referred to as uncle by his pupils is always to be respected and never to be trusted. Tune in to find out why. This is episode 188. Power Athlete Nation, it's that time again. This is the premier podcast in strength and conditioning. If you haven't heard about it, I don't know what you've been doing. Because obviously, if you go to iTunes and look up the reviews, they should all be five stars by now. Yeah, well, I mean, they are. We pay those people handsomely. <laughs> handsomely. Handsome salaries. Uh, what do we got going, Tex? This one's going to pop off just before the New Year's. So happy New Year's, everybody. If you are a resolutionist and you are looking to get back in shape, check us out. We obviously offer programming that throws you abs. It's only, like abs only. Armageddon. What else we got? We got Jackhammer. We got uh, Calf Attack. That's John's favorite. Yeah, we got uh, uh, what is it? Jack and Tan. Treasure, treasure Chest. Treasure Chest. Hecosaurus Rex. These are all programs you can find on the one and only Train Heroic. <laughs> donkey, donkey Calf Raise 101. <laughs> Partner Donkey Calf Raise. I like that one. And then what's odd about the donkey calf raise is the less clothing you wear, the more training effect. Luke, I think that's called the reverse donkey calf raise. Oh, yes, the reverse donkey calf raise. That's right. All right, people, enough of the small talk, but happy new year coming up. Who we have on today is our very own no introduction. <laughs> our very own friend, Dave Spitz. Um, Dave, without, I guess, stealing your thunder, Dave runs Cal Strength up north. We spent a lot of time with him. Uh, Dave and us are on the Train Hero platform, and we met through those guys. So just had a super killer meeting back a few months ago, shared a lot of similar methodology, uh, a lot of outlook on life, I guess. And then also what I think is going to be most listeners are going to really tap into is just how you guys are prepping your kids to be um, contributors to society, right? I guess not shitheads. But I guess, Dave, why don't you just give some people some, the intro unless they, unless they don't, you know, in case they don't know who you are, you know the drill. Yeah. Uh, well, first, thanks for having me on. This is uh, an honor. I'm obviously a huge Power Athlete fan. Uh, I don't consume a lot of media, but I do listen to the podcast. I do follow you on Instagram. And uh, I, have, uh, I have aspirational goals to become uh, the John Wellborn of Olympic weightlifting. Um, whatever you know, I mean. I just teared up over here. I have like a tear streaming down my face because I just want to be the Dave Spitz of our athletes. Really, at Starbucks, <laughs> <laughs> anything that has coffee and breakfast, I'm in. I'm good at both those things. <laughs> so uh, yeah, let's talk. Uh, Cal Strength is uh, is uh, my baby. It's uh, it's definitely um, been a cool adventure over the last decade you know transitioning um the mediocrity that is northern california athletics into something that we can all be proud of 
but um, it all started with, uh, with, with my journey uh, in Olympic weightlifting and uh, transitioned into a for-profit uh, athlete performance center uh, just, to, just as, a, as a way to fuel my, uh, my coffers to be able to continue my Olympic weightlifting pursuits. And, and so, you know, I'm an owner, I'm a coach, um, and really what we, what we focus on is, um, is athlete development. And um, we have that NFL combine presence, and uh, we, we, we have a big presence in the Olympic weightlifting space. And um, that's it in a nutshell. You know, we started a YouTube channel a couple of years ago, uh, putting stuff on there that, that predates CrossFit. Uh, and so I think that, you know, a lot of the Olympic weightlifting content um, that we threw up there initially, we didn't realize anybody had any interest in whatsoever. We were just doing it to motivate our athletes. And lo and behold, people started watching. And so it became a cool platform to educate and inspire people. And uh, that's really where the movement, I guess, took off. Would you say that Olympic weightlifting is a monetarily successful or really kind of a deep pocket? I mean, is there a lot of money in Olympic weightlifting? It's ultra niche, um, and it always has been. But I've been a big believer in, you know, being able to own a niche. Uh, and, and we've always aspired to make money off of weightlifting, not off weightlifters. So if that makes sense, we, you know, the, the idea that, you know, you could use weightlifting as a tool for athletic uh, development or, you know, for, for general fitness applications, you know, using weightlifting as a tool, uh, to make the money is, is been the, has been the, has been the goal. And as you guys have obviously seen, it's, there's, there's a lot more breadth. There's a lot more use of the, of the Olympic variations across, you know, fitness of course, but then, you know, in every college weight room you go to now, uh, it's all platforms and squat racks. Whereas, you know, when you went to school, I think it was all Nautilus machines, right? And, uh, no, actually, um, I think we rapped about this. My strength coach in college was Todd Rice. And by far the uh, most Olympic lifting heavy strength coach in NCAA probably history. So, I mean, yeah, no, I mean, it was, uh, you know, snatch clean and jerk. I mean, I wasn't allowed to bench. I mean, I only front squatted for three years. I mean, uh, so I come from, you know, a pretty deep bully background. And, uh, you know, ended, um, you know, I, I, I snatched 130 and uh, clean and jerk 172 and a half as a senior. So, I mean, those are pretty good numbers. So I was, uh, my goal was about 300 kilo total and I ended up hitting that by, you know, two and a half kilos. So I was pretty stoked on that one. And, um, yeah, no, I, I, I always use the Olympic lifts and always really liked them and, uh, you know, always liked the idea of basically moving weight dynamically. Um, so, I mean, but, uh, I always, and I, I think this may come from a little bit of when I, you know, with Todd Rice was the idea that I really, you know, favored a lot of the power movements just because they were a longer pull. And I remember, uh, you know, when we were, he had all these old, like, Bulgarian-Russian videos that we had to watch for technique on VHS. And I remember, like, the dude's always, like, sitting in the back, like, smoking cigarettes and stuff. And, um, you know, like, the, the one that was most interesting to me is every one of those dudes had kind of long hair. So when they pulled, you could always see their hair whip up, and that's how you knew they got it. And then when we would go lift, like, he'd always talk about people missing, you know, hip extension and not getting the full extension and missing triple extension. And, like, there was this, this constant fist fight every day talking about, you know, and I remember being like, fuck, like, missing extension. And he just made, like, the most insightful thing to me one time was uh, if you pull the bar longer than you think, like, on a power movement, you'll never miss extension. And uh, that was extremely insightful for me when I go play, when I went to go play football about being able to hit people with full extension was the idea to be able to almost, like, pick a point and try to drive through them, you know, where I think a lot of guys, especially in football, they just try to hit the man. I always 
tried to hit like, you know, a, you know, two or three inches past where I wanted to go. And I think that was like huge in terms of me getting full extension and uh, um, just, you know, for my own development as a football player. So, I mean, I, I've always credited the Olympic movements. Um, and then when I got involved with CrossFit, I, I remember the way I got involved with CrossFit. It was a buddy of mine asked me about Olympic lifting and actually asked me for some technique stuff. And he, I was like looking at him and he's like, you know, five foot nine, 145 pounds. And my comment to him is, what the fuck are you Olympic lifting for? And what are you Olympic lifting? And he's like, oh, I'm uh, working on my clean snatch. And I was like, you're like 30 years old. What the fuck? You know, like it was so confusing that uh, all of a sudden there's this 30-year-old guy who weighs 145 pounds trying to ask me questions about snatch clean and jerk. And then he was like, oh, I do it through the single CrossFit. We got on the internet, we looked, and then I proceeded just to ridicule him until he was like, well, if you think you're so badass, why don't you go to their, one of their seminars? I'm like, sure, I'll go to their seminar. And that's how I got involved in CrossFit. So Dave, hold your thought real quick because I want the listeners to know that the fucking property managers have decided to repave our parking lot. So that's the nonsense you guys are hearing in the background. And there's nothing we can do about it. I tried to hunger strike, and they just fucking threw me out. Luke actually sent his dog over who sprinted through all of the tar and everything, and they <laughs> almost killed the poor So anyways, apologies in advance, guys. And I guess, Dave, for any of the fucking annoying uh, background noise, we're going to try and Does keep it Does it sound annoying? Do you, can you guys hear it? Like the beeping? I, I, I can't hear it. And personally, I mean, I don't think anybody's going to listen to this shit anyway. Yeah. <laughs> You know, Dave, that's a really well, fun, actually, that's a good point. Scott's going to listen to this and gave, take notes so that he can give it to Dave later. It's, that's right. Good thing John's not a talker, you know, so we'll, we'll keep y'all on mute. Wow, Tex, was that a joke? I think that was sarcasm. Was that so? No. He's laying Tex. it on pretty thick. <laughs> I didn't know he had reached a high enough level of coaching to actually employ sarcasm daily, and it was, uh, you know, mm-hmm. just slipping it in. Mm-hmm. I mean, that takes a master level coach like Dave. Well, I'm sure he's reading some book about sarcasm and coaching. You got to, you got to dress for the job you want. I was going to say, I mean, you know, that's how you know you've uh, reached the final level of coaching when you actually only coach in sarcasm. Mm. Like, Oh, that's really beautiful. Keep doing that. And we will be nowhere in a month. (laughs) I, I, I actually have a book coming out next month. It's called uh, passive aggressive coaching strategies. And that's, that's basically (laughs) that's chapter three is. Well, uh, well, that's chapter three. Chapter two is called uh, belittlement, where you just belittle somebody, and then when belittling doesn't work, then you go to sarcasm, and then then chapter five is you come back to belittlement, and then it's kind of a ebb and flow between belittlement and sarcasm. Like mm-hmm. you suck, and I think you should fucking kill yourself. To uh, no, you're doing really good. I think you yeah, should. I, kill yourself. I, I I extrapolate a lot of uh, my coaching strategies from my bar behavior back in my early to mid twenties. <laughs> strategies I would use to 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 convince uh, females to enjoy my company. That's, that's, that's what I use on the platform mostly. Did it involve like a strong grasp under their arm, like on the base of their, like kind of bottom of the armpit with like kind of like a squeeze and like a head nod, real violent head nod? <clears throat> yeah, of course. Yeah, I mean, that's okay. See, yeah, that's I'm, like, I'm that's, not weird. That's, uh, that's what the first movie you learn as a kid. <laughs> Dude, so uh, give me some background, like a little bit, like um, you know, how did you get into Olympic weightlifting? Uh, you know, and I, I know we had a really killer conversation about you working with Abba JF, but like, um, and some of those stories are hysterical, and I don't know if you can retell them, but yeah. I would love to. But maybe uh, anything with a goat. Yeah, and anything with a goat or uh, having to drink goat urine uh, is really good. Um, but uh, how, how did you really get into Olympic weightlifting? Was it something like obviously through sports, and then you fell in love with it, and you know wanted to become the fucking master of the snatch miniature? Yeah, you guys had uh, Adam Nelson on last podcast, right? I mean, that badass. Um, I was a thrower. Um, 
I went to the University of Southern California through the shot put and through the hammer. And uh, so we used the lifts to train for, for the throws, obviously. Um, mostly power variations, though. And uh, I was always strong relative to my distances, and it was always something that I wanted to try uh, competing in Olympic weightlifting. But, you know, being that, that we were uh, not permitted to do a whole lot outside of track and field at the time, you know, I had to wait until my collegiate career was up. So finished college and um, went to work, kind of forgot about the Olympic weightlifting thing for a minute and uh, worked for four years, you know, lived in, uh, in Manhattan Beach, uh, lived in, in Hollywood, moved to New York for uh, a year. And, you know, I was successful at the end of like four or five years and had accumulated some money and uh, uh, had a hot girlfriend, had everything I thought, you know, I should have. And uh, the Olympics uh, were in Athens in 2004 and people like Adam were there competing and something just struck a chord, man. It was like, you know, I, I feel like I, I, I didn't really put out the effort that I needed to, to kind of fulfill myself as an athlete in college. And I just, I felt, you know, even though I was kind of successful from the outside, I felt kind of empty. And so I looked up a coach and, and, uh, and decided that I wanted to start training the Olympic lifts. And so I was driving three days a week, about an hour and a half from where I was in the East Bay area out to South San Francisco to, to be with a man named Jim Schmitz, who was, uh, who was kind of the only guy in town. And uh, Jim took me up to uh, my first competition. And at the same time, I was volunteer coach, uh, throws coach at a uh, high school locally here. And uh, a kid came out and started throwing, and uh, he was a genetic freak. So I inquired about his parents, and it turned out his dad was uh, the original Bulgarian Wonder Boy, uh, a man named Alex Krychev, who won silver medal in 1972, had all kinds of junior uh, world records, and uh, had defected uh, to the United States in the mid-'70s, and um, really never, never, never thought about weightlifting again until – his son started throwing for me. And so we made a pact. He would coach me. I would coach his son. And uh, he took me uh, from my first competition up to about 130 kilo snatch and 175 kilo clean and jerk. And then basically, uh, you know, confessed that we were using a Bulgarian system that was, you know, circa 1975 and that his knowledge, you know, was, was finite and, and the, we needed to go to Bulgaria and go and talk to Abhijiv and see what they were doing now to continue to produce results. And so we got on a plane, we went and visited with Abhijiv, stayed there, trained in all the Bulgarian halls for like two weeks uh, and, uh, and convinced him ultimately that it would be in his best interest to move to the United States and, and to, uh, and to reestablish himself as a coach uh, because he had been uh, uh, booted from the Bulgarian team. And uh, I formed a nonprofit, you know, a kind of, a kind of uh, figure if, if I was going to do it this time, I was going to do it right. Formed a nonprofit, donated a bunch of my own money, recruited some, some corporate sponsors and some individuals to throw in some money. And I wrote visas for Ivan Abhijiev and for two Bulgarian athletes to come over to the United States. I rented a house in Benicia, California, converted a the garage into a training hall and, uh, and, lived, trained, and, uh, and basically ate shit weightlifting for, for the better part of 18 months with Abhijiv and these Bulgarians. 
And across the, the span of that 18 months, we started adding American lifters to the equation. So names like Donnie Shankall and James Moser and Max Ada. Um, so that was kind of the, uh, the entree. And, you know, the, the experiment failed miserably in that, you know, you can't fucking export what was successful in 1970 to 1980. Eastern block, yeah. No, it's like, it's, it's ridiculously stupid when I look back on what I thought could happen. But, you know, success is situational. And, and you probably know that better than anybody. Um, you couldn't take Vince Lombardi out of the past and plug him into the helm of the Green Bay Packers and expect him to have, you know, any success. He's not going to win a damn football game. And Abhijit, you know, was a was a product of a culture that was incredibly oppressive, that was uh, that was incredibly limited in terms of opportunities. And so, you know, he had this extreme motivation structure that he could use with his athletes. You know, if you made the national team, you could own a car, you could live in a city, and you could most importantly travel to see you know the the Western world. And so the upside was phenomenal. The downside was, you know, you're, you're basically imprisoned to the same job that, you know, your, your, your dad or your grandfather did. And, you know, you have, you have no liberties whatsoever. And so uh, he had this extreme motivation structure and he had this extremely brutal tactic that he employed where, you know, it was a survival of the fittest. And, you know, I still maintain to this day, all else being equal, the Bulgarian system will produce the strongest most 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 effective weightlifters but you're going to you're going to burn through you know 50 athletes to get the one and uh you know i think there's a obviously a better solution that we can that we can use here um, a more intelligent solution a more more practical solution and so that's what we've been working to develop so would you say then that is the that's like the onset of cal strength was that experience or is that just kind of laid the foundation? Absolutely. I mean, uh, I, I think that one, the one quality that all entrepreneurs have in common, right, is that we don't give up. It was that we take our businesses very personal. And, uh, you know, I went from this nonprofit to, you know, having limited success uh, in, my, in my plan to, uh, to bring Abhijit over it and, to, and to ignite a fire in, in America for weightlifting. And, you know, after, after two years, I was just like, I was depleted financially. I was, I was fucking injured. I had just gone uh, through a labrum surgery in my shoulder. You know, I basically had to admit defeat, but I rolled up my sleeves, created a for-profit called California Strength, decided that I was going to take everything that I had learned as a track and field athlete, as an Olympic weightlifter, all these experiences, and try and help athletes uh, at the grassroots level, at the high school level, at the junior high school level. To develop and then uh, somehow continue to use those funds to advance our cause in the weightlifting world, and um, and that's that's the genesis of California Strength. So then, uh, what were the early days of Cal Strength? Because we know we're, we know what you're up to now. I mean, we caught up, um, you know, back in in Boulder. Oh, so then, how did uh, how did you hit the level of success that you've achieved now, being the premier? Olympic weightlifting gym in Northern California. Whoa, in Northern California? Yeah. You, you got to rephrase that. Oh, what, what was it again? In the world? In the world. There we are. Well, I, I mean, so if, uh, uh, you know, like anybody that, uh, you know, because I've, 
I've known about Dave for years. I mean, um, you know, and I've seen like, uh, I watch their YouTube channels and I remember like seeing their early videos. I can those two. I've seen the movie 8mm, like the early snuff videos when yeah. they're showing 8mm. That's, that's what I, I actually relate Dave's early Cal Strength videos to. Olympic lifting snuff. Well, it was, yeah, it was the 8mm <laughs> Olympic lifting. It was a bunch of like, it, it, was, it was just like really bad, like gravy. Uh, white walls, like so that's like uh, the technology like, like Donnie Shankle with no shirt on ever, yeah. regardless of what the weather was. Uh, like you know, like I remember watching these guys just like you know banging some weights and these spot and it was uh, there was no music, there was no editing, there was nothing. It was just these gritty videos. But people and, loved it. Though. No, but but yeah. that's the shit that people like. I think, and you know, we've seen this. I'm sure Dave has too. When things are too orchestrated or too produced or you go too far out like people just don't give a shit about this stuff people want to see the grit and like that's why things like 30 for 30 in these uh yeah you know like even like you know fucking stupid shows like hard knocks which are too overly processed you know aren't as good but um no i, I remember seeing dave stuff and um you know seeing some of the young lifters and and some of the, those early days and uh I, dude i thought it was great i mean it uh it reminded me a lot of the you know, collegiate strength conditioning stuff that I was involved in at Cal. Right. And, and so I, I think like that type of stuff is gritty. But I mean, uh, you know, the problem is, is like you said, everything is so situational that like you almost try to do that now and you've like kind of missed it a little bit. So you kind of hit it at the right mark and really put a lot of work and time into, uh, you know, perfecting the Olympic movements when they were still relatively new. Because I mean, Dave, would you say that 90% of the people that are doing the Olympic lifts now kind of probably found it through CrossFit? Oh, without question. I mean, all of my young kids that I have on the weightlifting team, that's all, that's all CrossFit driven. So, you know, it's, it's true. It's, it's a ton of participation that we're getting. You know, the other thing about Cal strength, especially the early days is, I mean, the people that self-select to be weightlifters, right. To, to, to participate in the fucking hardest sport you can possibly participate in, you know, your reward for getting better is you get to lift more weight. Fucking great. You know, you get better and it just gets harder. Uh, you know, there's zero money in it. It's incredibly painful. You're always in discomfort, you know, uh, and literally like there's zero opportunity. So at the time, like the people that were, that were self-selecting to participate in, in, in the sport of Olympic weightlifting were fucking weird, you know? I mean, and I say that, you know, with, 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 with the utmost love and respect for them, but you know, the Donnie Shankles of the world, you know, that's some crazy character personalities that we had to, to, to work around. Um, and I think that, you know, while it was a challenge, it ultimately led to some great video content early on. You know, when you talk about John North and Donnie Shankle and Kevin Cornell, you know, these guys, you know, Glenn Pendelay, these guys that are just like, they're just, they're, they're each, each, each and every one of them are their own cult of personality, you know, movement type kids. And, uh, you know, it was just, it was fun to, fun to put video content to those to those guys Dave, go my, ahead, uh, let, my Dave. favorite uh, not, not to up, but my favorite Donnie Shankle story is uh, I was coming out of LAX and I was walking off the plane coming like walking past security to go down the escalator and I see Donnie Shankle about to go through security and I can spot him because I you know he's kind of noticeable he's wearing a wife beater and yeah. like instead of like cut off sweats he cut off himself lift by like slides and he's barefoot and uh, security literally had him fucking wrangled up and was about to fucking throw him out and I walked by, I'm like, oh, there's Donnie Shankle. He's like, kept rolling. So sorry about that. I'll cut you off. Dave, going back to, you know, you had mentioned that the sport is, in your eyes, by far the hardest sport, right? So I don't know if a lot of people understand the culture of proper 
like competitive uh, weightlifters, people aspiring to, to try to hit that world class level. You know, what, what's the lifestyle? Why do you why do you or why do you label it as the hardest sport to be a part of? Well, I think that you know, there's there's a couple of things that that work together to make it so difficult. I think number one, the monotony of the sport itself, right? Like. A lot of people, weightlifting is an escape. So, you know, when John was on, you know, uh, these football teams, you know, you practice, the meetings, that shit's the grind. You get to go to the weight room and, and you get to bang some weights around. That's fun. Um, and, uh, you know, weightlifting is a sport. You know, our guys are training nine sessions a week. Um, so, you know, they, they, they rarely see the light of the day. Uh, and then they're also – you know, faced with this task of, of perfecting a skill while trying to drive uh, relative strength increases. And so there's all these different components that, that, that are working in some cases contrary to each other, you know, to develop perfect snatch technique and still to drive, you know, your 1RM pulling power or pulling strength. Like that's a, those are things that are kind of opposed to each other in some ways. Um, and then you combine that with the idea that weightlifting requires tremendous amounts of courage. So you have to not just be a gifted athlete and be a, be a technically proficient athlete to snatch 170 kilos. You have to have incredible courage to be able to override the self-preservation instincts that exist in all of us to hit your extension and then, and then drive yourself underneath a barbell that can, that can maim or kill you. Um, and so, uh, I think those things combined just, just make it so fucking difficult. And, um, uh, that's my answer. Do you, do you think ever at some point that, um, we can get some collegiate, uh, money for scholarships and people will start doing some, uh, Olympic lifting teams? I mean, I knew, uh, when I, when I first was, or I remember like in, during my NFL career, uh, we like went trained at a place that actually had bumpers and platforms. And um, they had a club team, and it was really the first one I had seen in a long time. But uh, I remember asking, like, hey, is there scholarships? And this was probably around 2005, 2006. And I think there was, like, two universities, and I don't even know if they were NCAA single uh, Division One that were doing something with weightlifting. I want to say it was, like, Minnesota and another one. Uh, do you see uh, potential? I mean, because, uh, you know, as popular as it's getting – and, you know, they're always looking for different uh, women's sports to kind of balance out the Title Nine. I mean, is there ever a point you think that Olympic weightlifting – because, I mean, realistically, for Olympic weightlifting to really gather the type of attention it should, it's going to need some form of, like, collegiate buy-in, some form of, like, feeder program, something where people can go and maybe give scholarships for these kids. Yeah, I mean, that would be a dream come true. Um, you know, I think that uh, I think that a lot of the scholarship money is is going to come from organizations like mine where, you know, we have our operations that, that then fuel, you know, the coffers for the, uh, for our investments in weightlifting. And so I think that us producing uh, opportunities for scholarship is probably the, the best answer for local universities in the short run. Uh, in the long term, you know, there, there, there's, a, there's, there's two or three schools, uh, LSU, uh, Eastern, Eastern Michigan, that, that do offer scholarship programs for weightlifting. Um, but they're few and far between, man. I think when we start having some success, it's kind of like a chicken and the egg. When we start having success internationally, those types of things will become more appealing. Uh, but until that time, you know, it's going to be tough. 
when, when we're sending one weightlifter to represent the United States on the men's side uh, in the Olympic Games, you know, it's tough to generate exposure, even if that lifter is Kendrick Ferris, who's a, who's a charismatic, awesome dude. It's, uh, it, we, we're going to we're gonna have to show people that we know what we're doing in the sport before we get that kind of buy-in. Didn't they, um, didn't they boot all the Olympic weightlifters out of the OTC recently? Can we talk about yeah. that? Yeah, we lost our entire resident athlete program, um, which you know, in some in some sense, might not be the worst thing because I think that the 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 club coaches, the coaches at the regional level, are the ones that are really producing the athletes anyway and recruiting the athletes. And so, you know, while it helps to have guidance and 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 funding and you know help from a from a central uh, source, it's also really difficult to run these uh, these training. Uh, resident programs with with any success so you know i'm a, I'm a big believer in having a, a strong national presence uh to to uh to drive our success internationally and by that i mean team selection um you know and then and then tactical decision making at the at the events themselves but in terms of having the resident athlete program i don't think that was a tremendous value so uh dave talk about I guess you're in, uh, I mean, you're the honcho over there at Cal Strength. So what are, you have to deal with different athlete types. And, and it's interesting because this is like you were saying, a voluntary gig that is extremely demanding mentally, physically. You know, how do you, how do you overcome the adversity? How do you talk people off the edge? Let's say you got a guy who's been training for the Olympics and then decides to follow his, his girlfriend to Canada or something. Like what, what's the, uh, what are the trials and tribulations? Uh, yeah. Well researched. Well researched. <laughs> well, I mean, isn't it like uh, I, I always think when you take things out on the fringe, like Olympic lifting is obviously a fringe sport, and it takes you know uh, they did you know great introduction in terms of like you know the type of mentality of person that wants to be a professional or like a big time Olympic weightlifter. Obviously, there's out on the fringe certain personality types, and when you deal with those type of personality types. You gotta be an, it's an art. Well, well, no, but I mean, those are very almost, uh, you know, self-destructive and, and extremely erratic and almost impossible people to kind of, you can only hope to contain it. Well, I, <laughs> I always think it's like, uh, um, this is such a fucking terrible reference, but recently I watched uh, dark siege, uh, which is a great Steven Seagal movie. You know, the one where he's on under like, siege? the train, you know, like dark, you know, uh, under siege, but like dark territory. Yeah. Under siege, dark territory. Yeah, sure. So like the one dude who they bring in, I believe this, that's under siege too, but under siege too. Well, the, the guy that they bring in who like designs the fucking satellites. Yeah. And they're like, why would we hire such a crazy person? And they're like, crazy people don't develop normal shit. You mm -hmm. want to have crazy shit that like a satellite that blows people up, but you're going to need to deal with it. Who's people. Casey Ryback? Casey fucking Ryback. You know the movie. I've got so goosebumps. Yeah. I think for weightlifting, you have to find those fringy people. And when you deal with those fringy people, they might decide, you know what, I'm going to go to Canada because they might better, better habit burgers. <laughs> Good God. Uh, I think it was the tuna burger is why Spencer Norman left, not the, not the, not the other burger. But at any rate, um, what, I, what I will say is that the quality of people that we're getting now is higher. Um, so, you know, I have, I have people like, uh, you know, Wes Kitts just snatched 174, broke the American record here at the American Open. And, you know, he's, uh, he's uh, won a national title and then two American Open championships. You know, he's, uh, he's from a football background. He played college football as a tailback, you know, found, found 
uh, weightlifting through CrossFit and then participated in grid and we found him in grid. And I, I was like instantly in love, uh, and, and convinced him to come out here. But you um, know, he, where do you play? Uh, where do you play college ball? Is he from Texas? Uh, Tennessee, Austin P. So, uh, you know, FCS school, um, you know, kind of a late bloomer, but certainly I think has all the, all the tools and I've coached a lot of NFL athletes, uh, uh, at the tailback position um, that, that, that play in the league today. I, I don't, I don't, I don't see anything that he, uh, that he doesn't have that they do. So he could, he could have played. You no, know, yeah. I actually just watched um, the videos you posted on your Instagram page of us and dude, he's super strong. I mean, he's so fast under the bar. Uh, yeah. You know, like I can't imagine with a guy that's able to generate that much foresight quickly that he wouldn't, um, been able to play that. Yeah, who was also an athlete growing up. Yeah, right? and, and, and and could run the rock. So, I mean, frankly, I'm, I'm a little sad I don't get to see him run the rock. I'd like to just try to get him into an NFL training camp just to see him fucking light somebody up. Oh, yeah. It would be it would, it would would be pretty special. But uh, at the end of the day, you know, that, that's, that's, that's the gift that we have here in the United States is we have this huge population, huge diverse population of athletes. And so, you know, we don't need to necessarily start somebody at age 12 for them to have success in weightlifting. You know, we don't – that 10,000-hour rule doesn't necessarily apply if you have an athlete that has such – ridiculous GPP and, and, and base built um, from a, from, from an athletic standpoint. And that's what I tell everybody now is because we are faced with, with the reality that most of what we get is late stage adoption in our sport. You know, it would be such a gift to have a West kids walk in here at 12 years old. That's not going to happen. Or if it does, it would be just an absolute cherry. Uh, what I need to do is figure out how to take great athletes and coach them in Olympic weightlifting so that we can have success now. So I think Wes, uh, over the next quad, and that's how we think, right, in four-year cycles, um, you know, has the potential to snatch 190 and clean and jerk 230. And that's, you know, by the standards that, that we're operating with now internationally, you know, that might be good enough to get a medal in the mail one day, you know, with the drug testing being, you know, as uh, as uh, as harsh it is, as, as it's getting. So do you, do you think that it's uh, realistic? I mean, because uh, West is what a one hundred and five. Yeah. So he's a one hundred and five. Yeah. So, do you think it's realistic for uh, for a, a one hundred and five non drug tested athlete to snatch two hundred? Uh, I think it's possible. It's yeah. possible. I, I think it's possible. I think I think um, you know I've seen West pull one ninety, and you know I know he was he was the second most tested athlete last year, and the the the, the blood and the and the urine that they're taking now, you know, the tests that they're running. They're so advanced, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's very refreshing. And so I know for a fact that Wes is lifetime clean and the way he pulls 190, you know, it wouldn't be a stretch if he stays healthy for him to, uh, to potentially, you know, try and try and make an attempt at 200. Um, but, you know, I, I think that, that human potential is just, it's, it surprises me all the time. And what body types I thought were going to be great uh, at late-stage adoption, I, I've kind of turned that model on its head. So, oh, so. For, for a while, I was looking at kind of shorter, shorter femured, longer torsoed type athletes, um, you know, that, that, that had uh, innate efficiencies in getting under the barbell. And then we would just teach them to squat and layer on the strength development to give them the prerequisite strength. 
Well, it turns out it's much easier to take an athlete like Wes that has a very short torso and very long levers to create these incredibly ballistic, powerful pulls um, and, and that have some, some, some athletic properties already um, uh, from, a, from a twitch standpoint to be able to, to get them to use their athleticism and, and rely less on strength to lift these barbells. And so, um, well, it, I mean, isn't the longer torso, shorter leg is more kind of a natural squatter, whereas the longer lever, longer leg, uh, shorter torso is a little more natural puller. I mean, if you think about just, uh, you know, for the majority of the athletes that are power development athletes, I mean, if you look at like most football players, track athletes, they're always going to be a little longer legged to, uh, you know, the ratio of torso length. I mean, I can't really think of too many guys that I played with that were like a shorter, longer torso guys. Um, the one observation I did make on guys that were longer torsos, shorter leg, tended to have way more back injuries. Uh, yeah, that, that was another one. You know, whereas, but then you would see, you know, guys with longer legs tend to more have more like knee and ankle and, uh, you know, some like shoulder issues. But like it's, it's um, you know, I mean, and, you know, I'm sure a lot like Olympic weightlifting, I mean, part of my job in playing in the NFL, you know, you basically sprint up the line as you have to do these like, ocular pat down of like a guy. You're like, all right, let me see what am I working with here? You know, and like you kind of have this ability to measure people up pretty fast. But I remember like if I ever saw a guy that was, uh, you know, kind of shorter leg, longer torso, I knew he was going to try to like, you know, not move the speed as much and try to leverage. But that's uh, that's a pretty interesting observation. And then, you know, like then how do you necessarily put a body type two on, uh, like you said, courage, which seems like a major component of Olympic weightlifting. Do you have the balls to dive underneath this weight? Yeah. And, um, yeah. It's, it's exactly right. And they, so, you know, the one thing that we look for in terms of assessing courage, and this is, this is for all my weightlifters and for all my athletes, really, you know, I want to go deep quickly and I want to get to the why. Why are you doing this? Why do you want an Olympic lift? Because if I can understand their motivation structure, if I can harness the power of an intrinsically motivated athlete, that, that athlete almost nine times out of 10 will, will have more courage than an athlete that has, you know, extrinsic motivation and is doing this for show or doing this because, you know, they're trying to impress some chick, you know, an athlete that really wants to succeed because it's important to them because it drives, you know, satisfaction and personal fulfillment. That's, that's where we're looking to, uh, to, to, to find the courage. And do you find that in a, a conversation? Because we had a, a guest, uh, Aaron Osmus, a thrower from Tennessee, double A, and he talked about um, he had a test. It was 10 by 10. So he would take an intern. He'd ask him what his 1RM is. They start at 50%, and then it's 10 sets of 10 working up. So do you have a physical test? Do you have just a conversation? How do you find out a courageous athlete? Yeah, I think there's a lot of ways to, to generate insights. But, um, you know, I think that the depth for me is really important. So, you know, I just, I need to have those conversations and just assess motivations first. Um, you know, before we even look at any physical properties, you know, cause I can, I can, I can, I can work around lack of toughness. So if we're talking about a 10 by 10, you know, that's, that's less of a courage play and that's more of a toughness play. You know, can you, can you grind through, can you grind through pain? Well, there's a lot of, there's a lot of tough guys out there that don't necessarily have courage. Um, and, you know, the other thing I want to, I want to assess is we talk about entitlement being a bad thing, but for, for an athlete to have confidence and to want to take the shot for, for, for you to want to be Kobe Bryant or LeBron James, and you want the ball in your hand, you know, for that last shot, how do, how, how do I, how do I, how do I assess that? 
how do I, how do I find an athlete that really believes? You know, Joe Paterno uh, said something once that I, I, I've, always, I've always kind of put a lot of stock in. He said, believe deep down in your heart that you're destined to do great things. And so if an athlete believes that they are endowed with the, 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 these special properties, and maybe John can speak to this too, because I think that to succeed at the level that he succeeded at, you have to know in your heart that you're a bad motherfucker and that you, you, can, you, can, you can rise to the occasion and, and get the job done when it, when it matters. And so, um, you know, motivation structure and, and, and that sense of not arrogance, but just, just knowledge that you're the, that you're the good, that you're the dude. So Dave, I want to uh, go back to a com- you know, uh, comment you made about really late stage adoption in Olympic weightlifting. If you did have a guy walk in at 12 years old, you know, and just knew they wanted to be a weightlifter and you, he had the telltale signs of being successful. How would your philosophy change from, let's say like that early adoption, true full life cycle training from a late stage guy like Wes? Like what if he did get 12 year old Wes? Uh, that's a great question. Um, so, you know, with Wes, we're always, I feel like we're always uh, rushing to get enough done. So I think that the first thing that I would do is, you know, I could be able to, I would be able to plan and, and, and structure things um, in a, uh, in a more measured pace. And so uh, I think that while uh, the strength part is important, you know, working uh, with a 12 year old to develop, you know, a, a mastery of the technique and then making sure that they're, they, they've got prerequisite athleticism across uh, a broader range of domains. I think that so many people, you know, want to specialize too early, uh, especially with weightlifting. And, uh, and I think that's a, that's an incredible flaw, you know, making sure that we're, we're, we're hitting different energy systems and that we're, that we have just, you know, a base level of coordination and, and, uh, an ability across a broader range of athletic properties is really important. Um, well, I also think too, if uh, you brought in twelve-year-old Wes, I mean, obviously you would want to. I mean, I, I always, I remember when we owned a commercial gym, uh, commenting once how hard it was to teach people to Olympic weightlift that were already strong. I always wished that, like, I could, like, because it was so much easier to teach people Olympic weightlifting who weren't strong that actually had to learn bar, you know, bar path and actually use some technique. Because I get so tired of watching dudes that were already pretty strong come in and just yeah, muscle and the fuck out of Overcome any sort of deficiency. Well, yeah, and, and, like, this, this ego of it being like, dude, stop muscling the weight. All this early arm bend, all this bullshit you're doing. Like, I, I get you want to fucking muscle the weight, but it's like building, you know, neuromuscular pathways that's counterproductive to what we need to do. So, like, I always remember thinking, like, if you could bring in, and some of the kids that we trained pretty early on, like, one of the kids went and got a full ride up to play baseball for Stanford. But he came in as a 12-year-old and, like, dude, just, you know, was really good about getting underneath the bar and, like, understanding what he wanted to do and i think we just had him fuck with the bar for geez months just learning the bar pathway and just being able to work his pole and you know catch and do all those things and so i mean what you bring him in you teach you know like the technique and the bar pathway and you put it in it's probably just a piece of their whole training but it's never one point where you're like okay you're an olympic weightlifter you're gonna like do every sport that we can really push them out and you know really start developing athleticism in that you know we talked about that close and open chain type movements and so if you were to like sit down and you had you know because i know the text you'd love if dave busted out and showed you his uh his spreadsheets for multi-plan it's it's fucking inspiring like it's fucking Mm -hmm. dr evil shit but if you can sit down with that 12 year old 
uh, and be like, all right, so the parent comes to you and says, hey, uh, I'll basically do anything you say. What sports do you want them to play? What do you want them to do? You're like, well, I want them to bring them in three days a week, and we're going to work technique and teach them bar pathway, but I want them to do, you know. X, uh, Y, and Z. Yeah, X, to, like, to develop know, the prerequisite yeah, athleticism what, you're talking What about. would be those, uh, you know, because I have my theory on what sports I would recommend, but I'd love to hear yours. Yeah, so, uh, you know, I think if we're talking about Olympic weightlifting or if we're talking about, like, really young kids – you know, I'm, I'm a big believer in having everything be bilaterally symmetrical if we have our, if we have our, our druthers, right? So, you know, I love baseball and lacrosse, but, you know, those things will develop uh, inherent asymmetries that, that are not going to be productive for us long term. So sports like, you know, swimming, like sprinting in the pool is really a, a phenomenal mechanism, uh, not just for, you know, some, some, some good energy system work at low impacts, but also, you know, there's, there's some studies I've read that, you know, uh, would suggest that, that swimming, especially like at high intensities can help develop receptors at the fiber level that testosterone can later bind to. We, so I would encourage them to get the we had this conversation in, in, uh, in Colorado pretty extensively. And, um, after we had that conversation, I went back and fucking did about 10 hours of research on that, uh, that topic. And pretty fascinating that um, part of the swimming is hypoxic, so you're you're able to handle a higher load. So you think about lactic threat, lactic acid threshold training. The amount of volume that you're able to do swimming in the pool is so much greater than what you were able to do land based. Right. And the fact that it's hypoxic, uh, we know you know can cause even more, which which goes back to support that claim. But ironically, um, you know we've been testing a lot of blood flow restricted type training which, you know, obviously you're occluding the muscle and you can get, you know, lactic acid pool and it does all these kind of really jiggy cool fucking, not only, uh, um, you know, increasing antigen profile and, you know, myostat blockers, but the comment was made that you're creating a hypoctic situation in that specific muscle by occluding the blood. And uh, like when, when uh, Dr. Sato, who is the inventor for the katsu in Japan, um, we had a, 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 you know, meet up and, and he made that like just that off the cuff comment and instantly it like triggered with what we uh, with the swimming, like there's something to that, like either altitude, hypoptic and the amount of volume, like you said, man, like it's, um, but yeah, you made that comment in Colorado. I went back and did a bunch of research and it's a pretty fascinating one. I mean, obviously we know for the female swimmers, it's even more dramatic because you know, what do they, they really don't have the uh, antigen profile of a male without testes, but we know that, you know, testosterone is made in the adrenals for women. So you're putting them into like a high motor type of deal and, Next thing you know, those girls are looking fucking swole up. Yeah, I mean, just anecdotally speaking, I mean, if you've ever been around swimmers, uh, you know, collegiate swimmers that that maybe find CrossFit or maybe find some sort of land-based uh, uh, way to to train after the fact, uh, they just get so fucking swole so quick. Um, and uh, so, anyway, uh, going back to that uh, that question, um, I would also encourage. Um, you know, some, some, some sprint behaviors, you know, I, I, I like to, I like to run and jump. Um, so, you know, part of my kid's athletic life plan, uh, is to, is to incorporate, you know, the swimming at a very early age and continue that up through, through, um, through at least the junior high school, um, age ranges, uh, but also introduce track and field, you know, so long jump, high jump, you know, sprinting um, up to, up to maybe a quarter mile. Uh, and then finally, uh, some gymnastics activities, you know, so, so not just having the ability 
to uh, produce force but absorb force is a monumental part of what we do as weightlifters. And so if you can incorporate some more of that plyometric type activities from gymnastics, you know, not, not just harnessing body control, but being able to, to produce force and absorb force in really sound positions, I think that that's, uh, that that's an important play. This all kind of sounds like uh, Swayze, Patrick, the ultimate power athlete. Houston, Texas I mean, native. Well, I, I, you know, I mean, seeing as you guys, I think Swayze would be a hell of a weightlifter. Well, don't you guys watch Roadhouse and uh, like yes. at least once a week? Yes. Well, yes. Okay. Short answer is yes. I've been starting to watch it in reverse just to see how that works out. You know, ironically, I told you the story about um, uh, my college room, or sorry, my, my college training partner is a guy named Drake Parker who was from Hawaii, and his dad. Uh, um, David Parker was the brother of Ed Parker, who was Elvis's bodyguard, who had developed American Kempo. And so uh, I, you know, I'd always done martial arts my whole life. And so, dude, Jeff Speakman, the perfect weapon, was like one of our favorite fucking movies. <laughs> Jeff Speakman's a Kempo guy and like Ed, like a student of Ed Parker. So I met him like years ago at Rick's house and I was uh -huh. so fucking excited. I was like, are you fucking Jeff Speakman? I was like, I love the fucking perfect weapon. And the dude was a little weirded out that yeah. here I am like in this dude with 20 in the NFL and I'm fucking jockeying Gaga. about the fucking, <laughs> but I, but I you were right. probably sweating profusely at the time too. Uh, just, just, I, was, I was probably wearing a leather jacket and trying to be cool and being like, Oh my God, it's just being with the perfect weapon. I'm like, do you, do you have a ring with the dragon and the lion? And, uh, but I, so I, I, uh, you know, Ed Parker's obviously passed away. And so I was rapping with Drake's dad when we were in Hawaii and I was like asking him about, um, you know, like some things that they, that they had seen when they were kids and how he got into it and developed uh, Kempo or the American Kempo. And he, uh, he made a really interesting comment. He said um, he, he was one of the first guys to actually videotape. Uh, this was done on eight millimeter reels. He would video, uh, like, you know, record all of their different movements, all the training sessions and everything. And then they would go back and do film sessions because, you know, these guys had played football and they were like, well, if it works for this, it should work for everything. So they would go back and do film. And um, he made the comment that he started watching everything in reverse and oh. actually watching their movements in reverse allowed them to start like anticipating what the opponent's movements were. And that's how he developed their American Kempo was basically watching all of their different training sparring sessions in reverse to, to be able to pick up what the movements were. <laughs> now, I had no fucking idea what he meant. <laughs> and I was like, oh, it's a great piece. Ironically, we go in and, you know, if you guys watch, uh, you know, if you're sitting in an NFL film room, they have something called the Cowboy Clicker, which is a clicker and it's got all these fucking buttons and shit. But what we would always end up doing is you'd watch a play forward and you'd watch a reverse and you'd right. watch a play eight to ten times. And we would always watch everything in slow motion because you could almost see, like, here was where my step was, this is where my step started. You could, like, go back and forth. And I remember, like, almost the uh, watching in reverse was as beneficial. And I always remember that when people are like, why do you want so much in reverse? I'm like, I'll tell you a little story about Ed Parker. And, uh, <laughs> people, you know, people don't know who he is, but like that type of stuff. And, uh, I mean, think about the ability to coach Olympic weightlifters now that you guys have, you know, fucking handheld video, like in an iPhone. I mean, I was thinking about like when I Olympic lifted in college, we would, uh, um, you know, you would do something and like, well, what happened? And they'd like, well, I, I don't know, you know, like there was really no way to fucking like, <laughs> it was like, well, you didn't pull the bar long enough. You just not, you're a fucking pussy. You're not getting underneath it. Like you jump forward, you jump back, you put a line on the ground. That was like our best coaching deal, right? You put a line on the ground. If you jump back, you did okay. If you jump forward, you're fucked. You know? Yeah. So like, 
I, I think like now that like the advent video is so fucking easy that now, you know, Olympic weightlifting, I mean, think about all, I'm sure for all your athletes too, especially your combine guys, you know, you know, somebody has a phone out and is taking a video with everything they do and instant feedback and being like, Hey, this is, this is what I want you to do. This is what you did. You see what you did wrong. And so I, I think like that ability to, to kind of create things in real time is, uh, um, has been really good. I mean, even for my kids and my daughters, I do that all the time. I do like if they are doing stupid shit, I video them and then I call them over to discipline them and show them exactly what they did. Yep. And, no, I didn't do that. I'll be like, yeah, I just videoed you dumbass. Look at this. So, well, we, we, we veered off uh, pretty far from uh, the romantic lead uh, of Patrick Swayze. But um, I think, I think what John brings up is an excellent point. You know, I think a lot of, a lot of coaches, you know, were valued uh, prior to extensive video use because you could kind of forensically put together uh, an analysis of whatever that error was by, you know, looking at the outcome of a lift. So you could kind of know, you know, based on sound, whether the athlete came down on a neutral foot, whether, you know, the athlete jumped forward or backwards or whether the bar looped behind or dropped in front. You know, you could kind of forensically put together the likely scenarios for what caused that error. And that's how you coached. And now with huddle or with a coach's eye where you can speed up, slow down, look in reverse, you know, make it as granular as possible. Everybody can look at these key positions that we've outlined um, and, and, and become relatively effective coaches on their own. And that, that in and of itself is, you know, democratizing this, this information and allowing athletes to use, you know, our online programming or your online programming and have so much more success. So it's been fucking cool to watch. And, you know, some of the guys that we get now that walk through the door that say, you know, Oh, I learned a lift off of your YouTube channel. And then, you know, I follow the power athlete program, you know, they come in here and they, they look good. You know, they look like they know what they're doing. It's, it's really, it's really refreshing and it's kind of cool. And I think, having that, that raw material um, get exposed to these, to these movements and be able to coach themselves um, is going to produce great results down the line. I mean, I, uh, I remember when we first started Olympic lifting in college, we really had no idea because we had those, um, do you remember those like hand drawings that were like a side photo and it was showing like the Russian, the Bulgarian lifter and yeah. it showed them at different poles that was like hand drawn. I think it came from Iron Mind. We had like six of those on every wall. And so that's the way that, you know, when to be like, what happened? And you'd go over to the chart and you'd be like, okay, you did this. And they would basically coach off of that chart. Yeah. And uh, it wasn't until um, I, we actually watched video of the Bulgarian and the Russian lifters that, you know, Todd Rice had gone over and actually hand recorded with his VCR. And when I watched it, I was like, oh, that makes so much more sense. Like, <laughs> it, it, it was one of those things where I was like, I like, like when you see it, you're like, ah, da, da, da. Oh, and then you see these guys that are actually text technically proficient and you start understanding that there's like multiple poles in this thing. And like, like you physically have to use the, you know, the, the bearings and the bar to pull yourself underneath the weight. And like, to me, that was like one of those like beautiful mind moments where I was like, so you're using the leverage of the bar to pull yourself under the weight faster. I was like, I mean, and that little piece was like the difference between me doing a really shitty, you know, 130 clean, to like a 172 and a half clean, like that little fucking piece of just trying to accelerate. And then, um, you know, like for me, that was also, uh, you know, and I hate to make this, this fucking generalization, but for me it was like, as my clean and my front squat and everything went up, my vertical jump increased and my speed increased. 
Uh, so like I was able to see a one to one correlation. Like when I front squat 500 for reps, I mean, dude, I ran a four nine, I verted 34 inches. I mean like everything. And, um, that's so true, man. I, I just, uh, there's, there's, there's so many nuances that go into the lifts with respect to the tempo of the movement and then, you know, the timing and then finally the tension, where's the, where's the, where, where the tension is held in your body. You know, it's, it's so incredibly important and you can only, you can only see that by watching, you know, people who are, who are proficient in the movements execute them. Um, but I, I agree with you hundred percent. You could see, you know, I, I'm a big, I'm a big believer in obviously what Bunderchuk did uh, back in the day and, and his, his correlation studies to, uh, to athletic performance. And for most, most of the population, they're nowhere near the prerequisite strength levels uh, that are, that are required for them to, to not have that one-to-one correlation, you know, until you can back squat, you know, a, a 2.2 or 2.3 to one body weight uh, ratio, you know, Every every pound you put on your squat is gonna is gonna help you go faster. Um, have, have you seen that with your NFL athletes? That uh, I mean, I see this, this is the hard part when um, you know we get into these kind of general or these you know little generalizations. And I think like for the listeners, uh, when you know a guy like Dave who's at Cal Strength working with you know the fucking top college performers to get them ready for this fashion show, you know, fucking dance recital known as the NFL Combine. Um, you know, his goal is, uh, has nothing to do with playing football. It's, can I get these guys to jump high, run fast and look good doing it? Because I mean, the combine really is that fashion show. And then as soon as they get done, then it's like, then they come to people like me and they're like, Hey, teach me how to fucking play some football. Um, but I, I always wonder for, uh, you know, most of the athletes that you see, do you see a one-to-one correlation? Cause I mean, we've seen it all the time where we've seen a guy put, you know, 20, 30 pounds on a squat and not necessarily increase his speed. Um, have you, you know, is it something where, you know, you take the best athletes in the world and pretty much everything you do is work, you get them stronger, they run faster, but then, you know, I mean, obviously as you come down, uh, I guess you could say the genetic hierarchy, um, you know, is it something where, you know, some of your athletes that might not be as genetically gifted, you know, really struggle with these things? Because I mean, I I know even with your Olympic weightlifters, you still do a lot of athleticism and you test them constantly. Like I'm sure you love to pit the Olympic weightlifters against some of your combine guys and be like, cool, let's see who's got a faster 10 yard sprint and start doing some of that stuff just to, you know, just to see the broad broad jump, the vertical leap, that kind of stuff. Um, I think, you know, we obviously, we get, we get some studs in here that are, that are working on, um, achieving their NFL dreams and then going to the underwear Olympics and showing well. Um, and then we get some guys that are just workhorses, you know? And so I think that there, there is, um, there is something to be said for, you know, some guys just have incredible collagen properties. Some guys have, have, you know, the ability to store, you know, kinetic energy um, better than others. Um, and so for some of those guys, do I necessarily need to put, uh, um, them through these rigorous squat workouts to know that they can squat a weight that, that is going to enable them to run fast. No, I, my, my, my time is better served elsewhere, but we do use a lot of these properties. You know, the, I, I'm a big believer in, in obviously planning as you've seen, but you know, peak performance is it's systematic in that you have to have an accumulation phase where you're, you know, suppressing cortisol, you're suppressing testosterone levels so that, you know, you can then taper them and peak them. Um, to, to produce an optimum, uh, an optimum uh, performance. 
Um, but uh, so you're talking about like like super compensation, the idea that you know you're gonna you know I mean so those of you guys that are listening, I mean Dave's talking about this thing called this little known fact in Olympic weightlifting and also in performance training called super compensation, where you basically make these accumulation phases, which actually dig them into a hole and create a deficit, and then you taper them and you have this uh, rebound effect, which you know people have been using forever, but uh, I'm sure. I think I've read 50 articles that say it doesn't exist and I've read 50 articles that say it does. So it's pretty much uh, based on what school of uh, thought you're in. But I mean, I always thought it was true. Like you almost have to dig yourself a hole and then give yourself the ability to get out of it. And you usually are come back stronger, which is just, you know, that's, uh, you know, said principle of specific adaptation to impose demands. Yeah. And then there's, you know, there's, there's, there's super compensation over the long term, and then there's super compensation over the short term. And when I, when I say super compensation, I'm mostly referring to like the endocrine system. So, like, how do we super compensate testosterone levels and cortisol uh, for the for the event itself? Um, and that's that's where we're really looking to have, you know. Is is this where you starve goats and then slaughter the goats and then eat the goat meat? Yeah. Yeah, so that's a, I mean, when Abhijiv came over, he had a, he had a list, he had a, he had a piece of paper, he just handed it to me, it was all handwritten, and it was like, you know, uh, we need uh, clenbuterol, we need anavar, we need, uh, we need one goat, and I'm reading this like, uh, okay. Uh, You're like, the drugs, I can probably, I mean, you know, a goat goat? Like, a goat, like, what's the, what, what's the purpose of the goat? Like, well, we're going to. What we have to do is we have to tie this goat in the backyard and, uh, and uh, we have to starve it. I'm like, what? Yeah, yeah, we have to starve it. But, but we have to feed a little bit, little food, two weeks. About two weeks and we slowly starve it and then slaughter the goat. And then we, we will put the meat in the centrifuge and uh, we will extract the nutrients that will make you very strong, very strong. And uh, I can only imagine being in fucking you know, suburban Benicia, California, having a goat in your backyard, starving, like the noises, like the smell alone, the noises that this thing would make, like, meh, like, the, like your neighbors would just like absolutely like revolt when you have this goat starved in your backyard. And then it would work and you'd have three goats. And then, oh God. <laughs> and so, so, so wait, like, so did you get him a goat or did you get him a chicken or something? No, I refused to get him a goat. I, I, I got him a dog, um, which he proceeded <laughs> to fucking kick and, and throw obscenities at like, like no human you've ever seen. Like, this is a cute little fluffy German pup. And he is like the obscenities that would come out of this man's mouth. And I spoke enough Bulgarian to kind of like ascertain that he was calling it a stupid dumb motherfucker. Like as he's kicking it with his feet, nobody else was allowed to touch the dog. So that lasted for about eight weeks. And then I had to take the dog and I told him it ran away, but I, I, I placed the dog in a, in a more appropriate home. <laughs> Jesus. I had, I had uh, I, we were in the kitchen one day and he came down with this fucking concoction and it was like a pink looking drink and mixed in the glass and there was like a, a twig floating around in it. And so drink, 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 drink. And so I, I take it and I, I hold it in my mouth and I take, I take one sip and then our super heavyweight at the time, Nikolai Kristoff, who I brought over, who had snatched 200 and clean and jerk 250, he backhands me. Whoosh, like right across the face and the cup goes flying out of my hand, breaks on the floor. He's like, my friend, never drink, never drink. <laughs> what do you mean? 
uncle, we call him uncle. Uncle gave this to me. He's, he's, he said, I have to drink. He said, he making toilet. <laughs> like, what do you mean? You, you didn't make in the toilet. You didn't do this. He goes, go look. So I go upstairs into his master bedroom. And his bed is perfectly made as it always is because he slept in the closet. He never slept in his bed. He always made a little cocoon for himself in the closet. And I walk into the master bedroom and there in the fucking toilet bowl is this little old man stirring this concoction that he has just fed to me. So I, I, I need this to say I pulled the plug on the operation after I drank counter supplements. And so you're like, so, so the final straw was him cooking up a pink liquid in the toilet and uh, making you drink it. And then at that point you're like, the experiment is over. Everything's gone. I walked in the door uh, about a, a week later, and everybody in the house was basically passed out, and a few people had vomited, and the smell of gas hit me so hard. And he had, he had basically turned on the stove, couldn't figure out how to turn on the stove, so he just let the gas continue to, 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 to propagate through the house. He was passed out upstairs, probably you know a few breaths away from death. Uh, so I had to evacuate, I'd carry him downstairs, evacuate everybody from the house, and uh, I discovered that having Bulgarians is a liability. They're cute. <laughs> so they're kind of like gremlins. So they're a lot like gremlins. Did the, like uh, did the pink toilet stew make it to the Kettle Strength Protocol? Uh, yeah, that's one of the few things that survived. Do we, do we know what's in the pink stew? No, we don't. We don't. We don't. We don't. Yeah, yeah, don't. Yeah, it's uh, if you don't want scary answers, don't ask scary. scary questions. Yeah. Oh, dude. I mean, but he used to. Uh, he had a. He had a. He had a pill bottle full of, of, uh, of kidney stones that he had passed. You know, he never had a surgery. Never had surgery. Never do anything. He'd just be slumped over. You know, at practice from time to time, and then you know, like a couple hours later, he'd come running downstairs, uh, and he'd be so happy, and he'd be jiggling his pill bottle. I passed these, this, this finish now. And he'd, he'd show us these kidney stones. They'd be the size of your, you know, your, your, your pinky fingernail that he would just piss out routinely. Oh, Jesus. Like, just, a, just a tough, angry old dude. Jesus. So was there anything like, uh, like, I mean, obviously you probably saw everything, what not to do as a coach in terms of just in the Western world. Yeah. As a human, as a human, but was there any, like anything that you took away from that experience that is, uh, you know, yeah. a central theme in Cal, in Cal strength other than ridicule and, uh, and sarcasm? You know, I mean, one of the things that, that I learned, um, from an observational standpoint was when I threw these Bulgarians into the mix and when I threw the Americans into the mix, Abhijiv expected you to make the training lifts that he expected you to make. And so the Bulgarians were smart. They got off the plane and they knew what the protocol was and what was expected of them. And so they always held uh, reserve um, intensity so they, they, they would, you know, we'd be, we'd be asked to go to hundred percent, go to max and, you know, inevitably, you know, the, the story would be, well, you know, I'm totally detrained. This is, this is my absolute max today. I'm very concerned about injuring myself if I do one kilo more. And so they would make these lifts look, you know, as hard as they needed to look to pass his judgment scale, but then they would inevitably go up, you know, the next week and the next week and the next week. So, where the Americans started off like 
doing exactly what they were told. Oh, go to max. Okay. I'll go to max and I'll fucking like, you know, bust my ass to get, to get whatever, whatever I can get out of my body that day. The Bulgarians were only showing him what they thought he needed to see and giving this, holding these intensities in reserves so that they can continue to make the progressions they were, that, that he wanted to, uh, that he wanted to, to see happen. And so the Americans all got hurt. The Bulgarians, both of whom uh, progressed nicely. Um, one of them ended up snatching 190 and clean and jerking 230 on American soil, um, you know, at a, 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 a completely drug-free. And, you know, he just he assigned the system the right way or gamed the system the right way. So, you know, the old adage, if everyone subscribes to a model, the model then changes you know, is true of the Bulgarian system. And so the people that knew what they were doing and knew how to train in it inherently protected themselves from this, from this man. And so the CalStrength programming today, we call it a, a percent plus progressive overload. We'll start our athletes, whether it's a snatch or clean and jerk, at a given percentage in a mesocycle and then expect or assign uh, an increase um, week to week in that exercise. So the CalStrength system, I think closely resembles what the uh, practical Bulgarian system uh, is is closer to. So you have to basically learn to sandbag. Yeah. Which is when we, when we, when we, we did that Bulgarian deal. Uh, I think I, I was telling you that they sent me some you know, Bulgarian adaptation, what they thought would be a good program for football players, and we did it. I think I told you this. Uh, these guys did what the Americans did, and I fucking sandbagged. And just was like, that looked good. And I just went, as, I, I, and literally, I hit lifts as long as the bar speed was good. And when the bar speed slowed down, I stopped. And then all of a sudden, I like, you know, smash out the other end of it. And uh, these guys are still fucking just getting shattered. Yeah, uh, yeah it was no good. Yeah, it was no we good. We stayed healthy, but just fucking uh, not mentally healthy, I guess. Yeah, broke. well, it was fucking broke. Well, it was nine weeks of just failing every lift mm -hmm. every day. You know, you get really good at just eccentrically yeah, loading 220 fucking kilos to the ground every day and just losing it. It'd be like a walkout. You fucking hold the bar way too long at the top because you knew you were going to fucking just get buried. And then you go way too slow because you're trying to just prolong the inevitable. And then you fucking get pinned at the fucking hole. Yeah. It was uh, it was amazing. It's, well, it's triphasic mm -hmm. without – it's well, single phasic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, the, uh, yeah, no it's, it's, um, it's pretty interesting. And then the, the problem is is that, you know, all of a sudden the Bulgarians have all this, you know, athletic success and now there's fucking articles on T Nation talking about how to fucking use the Bulgarian system for bodybuilding. So which seems insane to me, but I mean, you know, so everybody's always trying to to, you know, fucking write something bullshit about how, you know, they're gonna use this system. I mean, at the end of the day, you know, the one thing that I really kind of enjoyed a little bit about the Bulgarian stuff was just the simplicity of the movements. I mean when you get into like the Russian stuff, you know, with the conjugate system where they're constantly working on these different variations and the law of accommodation. Um, what I think is, is, is a good system, I'm sure you use it for your more advanced lifters, but for people that are beginning or even what I call like intermediate, uh, you know, not even close to advanced, um, people that are considered like beginning, you know, fucking beginning lifters looking for all these different variations. And I'm like, you know, the reason that the, uh, they put the conjugate system in place was that so you guys can continue to train at a higher intensity. Uh, but they actually had trained to a point of accommodation. And I'm like, you have to reach that point. I'm like, if, if you never find any accommodation and you've never pushed the envelope, it's kind of like, um, uh, you know, I like the, the myth of, 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 uh, like my favorite part of, uh, 
training is like people always, you know, you read all these different things on the internet talking about overtraining. And I'm like, how many of you motherfuckers have ever seriously overtrained to the point where like you can't sleep, uh, you're fucking super emotional, you probably got some diarrhea, like, I mean, just like to the point where like all the telltale signs of, of overtraining to the point where, you know, like, like I just don't think people have ever reached it and it's like almost like this boogeyman of overtraining. Like, oh, you don't want to overtrain. I'm like, motherfucker, you got to overtrain at least a few times in your life just to know what your limits are. And um, it kind of blows me away. Yeah, I think that, uh, you know, we use a lot of partial range movements to teach the lift. So, you know, we'll, we, we use a top-down progression and we'll use partial range movements to kind of reinforce proper sequence, proper, proper motor unit recruitment. Um, but, you know, ultimately the goal is to, to get you to a, a, a full range movement that you can do with proficiency. So um, I would say that, uh, yeah, people oftentimes try to get too cute too soon. And uh, it's a, it's a fundamental flaw, you know, it, everything, everything that you do, you know, should be, should be kept as simple as possible. Um, and only use more advanced techniques when you absolutely need them, you know, not because they're fun or cute. Are you flipping me off? So uh, I got a question based off this. That's, that's people fucking it up. But what about coaches that don't know what they're doing? They don't understand the system and the approach to that, that dive into this. So, I mean, you've immer you immersed yourself in the, like the Bulgarian system to understand it. What about the people that just read an article and then apply it? Well, they're fuck sticks and uh, they don't understand what it means to be a coach. Uh, I mean, I think that, you know, being a coach, it's like, I say this all the fucking time. It's, 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 it's a tremendous responsibility. And, you know, when, when you're, when you're a coach, you know, you should, you should use the Hippocratic oath in a lot of respects, you know, and your principle should always be do no harm. So, uh, you know, like uh, that combined with the fact that, you know, I work for my athletes, my athletes don't fucking work for me. I'm their bitch. I, I'm, I'm, I'm grinding for them. So, so layer on some sophisticated program because it serves services. My ego is a huge problem. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I, you see it from time to time, but, um, you know, I encourage everybody just to, just to, just to be grounded in fucking logic, you know, a dash of logic in all these, all these situations would, would, would save us all a lot of, a lot of injury. Yeah, well, oh, well, well, well. Let's, let's take a major step back. Uh, logic has no place on the internet. I mean, like we always say, common sense is anything but common. And I think the reason being is uh, people have no frame of reference for anything, <laughs> especially when you get into this training space. Um, you know, I've, I mean, I've had these conversations with people for years where, you know, they ask you, you know, these detailed training questions and you're like, you know, probably you give your answer and they don't, you know, the answer might not fit with what they want. It reminds me, uh, when I was playing the NFL, I got, you know, I, I worked in my master's in education. I got invited to come back and speak at the school of education. And, um, they, you know, as I got up and I was, you know, taking questions, they started asking me like, why do you think athletes don't get their degree and leave school early to go chase professional sports? And I was like, well, it's money. And they were like, no, you know, like they could wrap their head around that these, most of these athletes were just using school as a springboard to try to get to professional, uh, to, you know, professional sports and make these big paydays. And then once they make these big paydays, there's really no value in going back. And I remember arguing with this lady and I even said to her, I was like, if you would have told me I was going to play for this long in the NFL, I wouldn't have come to Berkeley. I would have gone to Arizona state and I would have like just tried to bang hot chicks and party and had a great, great time. 
instead of like grinding myself. The reason I came to Berkeley and grounded out is I had no frame of reference for playing in the NFL. So I had this deal where it was like hard work. You got to get a good degree to get a job and like get into this rat race. I'm like, if you were going to tell me I was going to do a decade in the NFL, I would have had a fucking great time in college. And, um, you know, that's the, the realism that people do not necessarily want, especially in academia, but like you run into a lot of these situations. I'm sure you have, you know, you've taught seminars and you go in and people probably ask you like, Oh, I want to be a coach. What does it take? And you're like, it takes athletes and it takes training for something and having a singular goal and, you know, just getting people sweaty with some PVC isn't necessarily like training. I mean, that's more like, um, you know, dogs have trainers, uh, you know, people doing, you know, sweaty exercise of trainers. But like when you start coaching and you're looking at like not only managing, uh, you know, person day to day over the years in this multi-year, you know, cycle. Now you're talking about education, nutrition, you know, what are you doing? You're talking about getting in, talking about the motivation for athletes. I mean, you know, that's really taking it down to that level of, uh, you know, now I'm not only coaching them to, for performance, but I'm coaching all these other aspects of their life. And like I said, man, it's a huge responsibility. So, I mean, that's, uh, that's why like, you know, when, you know, people throw the term coach around so easily and I'm like, you gotta earn that shit, man. So, yeah, no, Dave, I, oh, sorry. Yeah. Go ahead. I was just going to comment on, uh, you know, like, the, the, the journey that we just embarked on with Wes to set that American record. It's like being a, a stabilizing force in that setting, I mean, was one of the more challenging things that I've ever been a part of because weightlifting, uh, in terms of setting a record, you know, it's not like swimming or track and field where it's a byproduct of a, of a performance. So you have, you know, you run, you, you run or you jump or you, you swim and you look up and holy shit, I just set a world record, you know, or holy shit, I just set an American record. With weightlifting, you know exactly what that record's going to be, when it's going to be attempted, and the magnitude of, of the accomplishment. And so it puts all these additional layers of stress on the athlete. And it was a uh, it was pretty, 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 pretty fun psychologically to keep him calm and keep him, you know, in 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 uh, in the moment for that attempt. So, what do you do? Are you into music? Are you in meditation? I mean, is it positive, you know, affirmations? Like, like what is it like in terms of your coaching strategy? Um, you know, I, I know you're super involved with the lifters, but I mean, would you say there's uh, any one strategy, or is it more just kind of, you know, constant re, uh, you know, constant reinforcement, ma making sure that you, you know, offer them probably in training a lot of a lot of movements that you know they're going to be successful at, like probably not trying to fucking smash them, or maybe some people it's kind of different. I guess I guess some people you try to smash and hope they rebound. Yeah. So uh, with with Wes, the approach was uh, start with kind of reactivation and then work into an accumulation phase where we layered on a ton of volume and the workouts were just so fucking hard. And I was uber psychologically aggressive with him through that whole uh, training block where it was, you know, like you're a pussy, you're a piece of shit. Come on. Let's you know It was all just psychologically aggressive, aggressive, aggressive. And then as we moved into uh, a transmutation and realization phase, you know, I got more and more coddling and more and more supportive. And then the final realization phase, I outlined each and every week attempts that he was to hit on Friday. And so we, we planned out this whole phase and put these numbers to his Friday workouts. And I knew that he was, you know, he's, he's uber goal oriented. So if he can see something, he can visualize it. He can, he can make reality out of it. 
And uh, so we, we, we just ramped up using that kind of Bulgarian system of we're starting off this given percentage and we're, we're, we're doing this linear increase, but I actually put the numbers and wrote them out. We put it on the board. And so after he, after he accomplished that, I think that, 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 that gave him a tremendous amount of confidence. And then just making sure that in the meet itself, we gave him an opportunity to make a, a, a very light attempt on the platform, a very reasonable opener, and then we ramped up into into that uh, that heavier attempt as opposed to you know opening heavy and and then just trying to trying to trying to go for the record on two attempts. We eased into it into a third attempt scenario. So worked so for him. This this level of connection, this this empathy is. Um, I'm just curious if you can teach this to your other coaches and try to practice it and apply it to their athletes. So do you have a, a systematic approach to developing your team that they can see what you see and then get this level of connection that you have? Well, I think that uh, you have to coach how you coach. You know, you, you can't necessarily coach how I coach in terms of the rapport and the psychological uh, strategies that I use. But in terms of the broader plan so for Wes's four-year plan for example this 2017 is a very low stress year so I'm never going to put him in an environment where you know he feels he feels the weight of the world that's not going to happen until you know 2018 and then 2020 uh, when we have an Olympic event Uh, so just planning your behavior I think is something that most coaches neglect to do so during during your off-season training, you know, during your 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 heavier volume and accumulation phases, how are you behaving? As as you as you get closer to to kickoff uh, and your and your season opener, how are you behaving? You know, just taking stock of your behavior uh, around your athletes and programming them programming it alongside the the physiological aspects of 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 the stress, I think is is something that is overlooked because the psychological aspect. You know, if you stress out an athlete psychologically, and John's probably had some dickhead coaches over the years that can get in your head and just like, and, and just crush you and ruin you. Those athletes go to sleep with that stress. They wake up with that stress. It burns, and it's a, it's something that you need to account for. So, uh, Dave, I was going to actually say that I dealt with many coaches like that, but unfortunately, growing up with the mom that I had, uh, none of them could hold a candle to my mother. So, uh, <laughs> no doors will The Mental warfare that happened as a Donald young child. Donald is a saint. Uh, she's a tough woman. So, like, I remember being, like, uh, you know, somebody that fucking coach tried to fuck with me. I'm like, seriously, honestly, dude, you are uh, one-tenth of the man my mother is. And uh, <laughs> there's absolutely no way you're going to fucking ever get inside my head. And if you did, you would never fucking know it because, dude, I show no fucking, like, no fear and no fucking residuals. Uh, but, yeah, like, no, I it, – it, it's really interesting. Like um, I, I used to have this joke that the term for coach reserved for guys that fucking wear short shorts and yell at me to work hard in the fucking middle of the summer when I'm there just sitting there in shorts, you know? So I kind of always had this joke about the coach thing, but I mean, realistically um, like the term coach is, uh, is pretty, you know, has a deeper meaning for me and that it's somebody that allows you to, do more or like motivates you or finds a way for you to do more than what you thought was possible. And like um, the guy that trained me for most of my NFL career, Rafael Ruiz, he's a coach like they're like, I remember Rafael, we would do things in training and I was like, had, uh, you know, 
I did not think I could do the things that I could did and he, I mean, and do and like the situations he put me in and how he prepped it and everything like allowed me to perform and do some things. And I always remember when people were like, Oh coach, I'm like, no, 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 dude, I just happen to be a pretty good athlete that can help other people get the athletes. But at the end of the day, if you're coming to me to emotionally or mentally prepare you for something, I'm probably not the right guy because I only have one thing and it's the hammer. Whereas, you know, Dave probably has more tools in his toolbox, but like where you were talking about like belittling and that, I'm like, Oh yeah. I mean, mine's just sarcasm. Like, like a coddling phase. I'd be like, uh, my coddling would be like, um, you want to get something to eat? <laughs> but I, uh, it's, um, uh, it's pretty fascinating. I mean, especially with, um, you know, the Olympic weightlifting because it's so, like you only get a few, you know six opportunities to to go in and compete. I mean, you hit them in the warm up room, you walk out there, you do them in front of the big stage. Um, I mean, is it something where uh, you know? And, and I'm sure you've seen this with uh, you know throwers and NFL athletes and different people. Like you have gamers and you have people that are great in practice, and like you know, there's very few times that people great in practice and great in the game. Um, you know, have you seen any guy, any uh, lifters that were so gifted in training, but yet? could never master the mental game of doing it on the bright lights in the big stage. Oh, no, most definitely. I mean, it's a, it's not easy. I mean, it's not, not, it's not just the, uh, the, the bright lights, but it's also the, the, the judging is, you know, coming from three angles. So, you know, you have to be technically very good. Um, and sometimes that gets under people's skin. You know, if you get a little, you get a little, uh, pressed out action going on a jerk that, that represents a max effort and you get, you get turned down two to one. I mean, that, that, that affects you. But, um, you know, the fun part about coaching, you know, weightlifting setting is just like anybody who's listening, you know, you've worked up to a one rep max, you know, we have to, we have to space out our attempts on, on the warm-up platform to coincide with their first attempt on the, on the competition platform. So that you have to, you have to have your timing, right. But then, you know, once you are in the meet, you know, maybe there's three or four people that you're competing against and you're, you're, you're vying for figuring out who can post the best total. There's a lot of tactical strategies that go into producing these results that happen behind the scenes um, with these, these change attempts that you're allowed to make. And so I, I always think that some of the most interesting stuff uh, that happens in a weightlifting meet are, you know, happening behind the scenes uh, on these attempt cards because coaches get 30 seconds to declare a weight for their, for their athletes. And then they have two change attempts from there. And so you can box people in and, and have them run out of change attempts. You can steal two minute clocks. You can, you know, you can do a variety of things. You're an active participant in the meet, which makes coaching weightlifting so fucking fun relative to, you know, once, once an athlete lines up for the 40, there's nothing I can do. Once an athlete, you know, sits, gets in the shot put ring, there's nothing I can do with the, uh, with the weightlifting, you're active the entire time. <laughs> so to answer your question, I see more coaching chokes than, 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 than athlete chokes. Yeah, no, it's Dave, is there anything else you want to talk about or to get back to it? I, you know, I, I just think that, um, I appreciate everything that you guys are and everything that you stand for. Cause in a world of bullshit and the world of like, you know, just, just gimmicky, gimmicky fad, uh, you know, I just, I appreciate you guys bringing, you know, real information to bear and, and using intelligence to process that information and then disseminate it effectively. So I'm a big fan of power athlete and I just appreciate you giving me the opportunity to, to come on the podcast and chat with you boys.
Well, dude, we really, uh, you know, like we said, man, like we, uh, you know, uh, you know, knowing you from afar and getting to know you through our relationship with Train Heroic and getting to hang out with you guys. And now, you know, I feel like, you know, uh, almost, uh, like a, I don't know, like connected now to you guys, but, you know, with your lifters and, uh, you know, really kind of, you know, staying up. And now I'm a fan, you know, always been a fan of Olympic weightlifting, but just a fan of Cal Strength and what you guys are doing. And more importantly, uh, what I'm really fucking hoping for is uh, I want to see an American with a medal around their neck in the Olympics. It'd be and, great to have you, you know, behind oh, fuck, the I, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I would be the biggest bandwagon. I'd be like, oh, did I tell you about my friend Dave Spitz? <laughs> they want to go medal? <laughs> Way oh, back. yeah, dude. Uh, let me tell you about where we were living. I was following his YouTube channel. I was, when it was, in, I was living in Apajam's house in Venetia. Uh, and, and if, ironically, if any of you guys have ever lived, you guys don't know about Venetia, but it's a shithole. So, um, Andy Jacobs was from Venetia. Oh, he's a face defensive end. But, uh, no, no, man, it's uh, it's great, dude. I'm, I'm, I'm glad that not only did you guys find your niche, but you're doing a great job. And you're fucking, dude, your, your uh, Instagram and your YouTube is hilarious. We love you, Donald, your Donald Trump. Uh, make uh, Olympic weightlifting huge and some of that <laughs> stuff. So I'm glad you guys have a sense of humor because in a world of people taking themselves so fucking seriously, it's yeah. like, Christ, like, it's just like, you know, we're training, we're lifting weights, we're having, it is offensive. How, like, I'm offensive by how offended you are. Well, it, it's like, if I hear one more person be like, ah, oh, this fucking elite. And I'm like, dude, just shut the fuck up. Like just bang some weights, have some fun, eat some food. Like, you know, like, just yeah, just fucking spin down goat meat. It's normal shit. Just yeah, well, normal shit people well, I'm, do. I'm just wondering where Abijay got the centrifuge. Yeah, I, I don't know. He, Did he bring he that with had, him? He had, he, had, he, had a big, he had a big suitcase with all kinds of things. <laughs> <laughs> Can you imagine going through customs and they're like, sir, you have the centrifuge. He's like, ah. <laughs> Evidently, a mixing bowl wasn't one of them, though. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's why you have toilets. So, well, listen up, people. If you don't know, now you know. Hit up Cal Strength on Instagram. Check out the YouTube. There's all sorts of good shit out there. And Dave, thanks a lot, man, for taking the time. I'm glad we were able to connect. And uh, I don't know. There's there. We got. We're gonna we're gonna have some sort of collaboration once we get settled out there in Texas. I mean, it's it, too it's too obvious to not happen. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Kapow. Kapow, that's Kapow. what Kapow. That's K-A actually Pow the combination power. of Cal Strength and Power Athletes. And, uh, you know, we're going to have a facility. I mean, I, I have, uh, you know, I know Dave wants to come down and, uh, you know, maybe do some stuff at mm-hmm. a Power Athlete Ranch, so it'd be cool. Yeah, Dave originally pitched Kalpow, but then that would be three letters each, and we needed three. Dave can only have two. It's, it's complicated. You know, it's just it's a relationship <laughs> in the works. We're still learning boundaries. Well, I thought we were POW. Pow. Kalpow. Yeah, it's Kapow. Kapow. Oh, Kapow. Okay, I got you. Yeah. I'm in. All right, Dave. Thanks a lot, man. Thanks, amigo. Thank you. Peace. Bye. Now it's time for you to empower your performance. Cal Strength and Power Athlete are like brothers from another mother. And if that mother had a name, it would be Train Heroic. You can find all of their amazing programming on the Train Heroic site. Or just admire them as a fanboy by following them on Instagram under the handle at Cal underscore strength. Looking for more info or the opportunity to train at the Cal Strength facility? Visit www.californiastrength.com. Until next time, bye!